ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Did anyone else get super into the story of Elizabeth Holmes? She was the CEO of that healthcare technology startup Theranos, who was later convicted of fraud. It's a pretty wild tale, and it all has to do with the field of microfluidics. I'm Tegan Taylor, and this is Occam's Razor, a soapbox for science. And the Theranos connection might leave you wondering whether the whole field of microfluidics is a scam. It's not. It's a very real and very promising field of science that has the potential to change the way we do drug trials. To explain... Here's Susie Seipt. Imagine a world without animal testing. A world where we can develop new medications without harming animals. With the rapid progress of microfluidics, this world might just be at our fingertips. Hi, I'm Susie. I'm a research scientist in vascular biophysics and global biotech and a science YouTuber. And today, I want to tell you about why I not only think that microfluidics is amazing, but also why it's the future. If you are an avid follower of scandals in science, <laughs> I just made that up, but it sounds like it should be a science gossip magazine, you might know how microfluidics got a bad reputation through the whole Theranos fiasco in the US. And while the people involved probably deserve that reputation, the science, and in particular the microfluidics technology, don't. In fact, microfluidics is already in use all around you, from COVID tests to pregnancy tests and diabetes glucose level checks to inkjet printers, they all use and are based on this technology. The need for so little amount of liquid is so desirable and technologically advanced that NASA is even considering putting microfluidic analyzers on their Mars rovers. But what exactly is microfluidics? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Let's start with the word microfluidics. The first part, micro, is because we're dealing with channel systems in the size of micrometers. The second part, fluidics, comes from the fact that we usually push through fluids through these channel systems. Easy. It's almost as descriptive as my native language German. <laughs> How do these labyrinths of channels now actually look like? Given the fact that we can design them ourselves, they can range from pretty simple, like straight channels, or looks like something like a letter Y with two inlets, or the letter T with like a cross with three inlets, to pretty confusing, where channels go up and down and all around, like a roller coaster or a labyrinth. But careful, if you think about that too much, your brain might get all knotted up as well. Okay, so we have these micron-sized labyrinth channels and fluid pushed through them. What do we do now? These systems can be seriously powerful tools for scientific research. When you think about chemists, the first things that come to mind, or what you find when you do a Google image search, are people in lab coats with flasks in their hand with colorful liquid in them, right? And then they usually pull one of those liquids in the other, and there's some form of reaction happening. There's an explosion, bang, smoke, the whole shebang, and ta-da, science. <laughs> You've got your end product. In a real lab, it's obviously, and sadly, much less spectacular. But what is the same is the speed at which these reactions often occur, very fast in milli or even nanoseconds. 
And the way to control and check what's going on in your reaction is often to find a way to slow it down and then take little samples, aliquots, at different time points and analyze them one by one. That's pretty tedious, and if your reaction is very, very fast, not even feasible for a human with only two hands. So microcytics can help with that. We can design the systems in such a way that we can bring reactants in contact by diffusion-driven flow along a channel. What does that mean? Think about the chemist with his two beakers again. Let's imagine one of them is full of milk and the other one is full of lemon juice. When you pull them into each other, you get instant cheese. <laughs> the milk curdles into chunks. Now, if we do the same in microfluidics, we would have one stream of milk and one stream of lemon juice flowing next to each other, and where the two streams meet, um, you can slowly but surely follow how this milk starts to curdle and forms little chunky cheese bits. This means if you progress down the channel, you can observe different points of time of your milk curdling process. Different positions along the channel are equivalent to different times in your reaction. We basically freeze our reaction in time while also having it happening with a constant incoming liquid simultaneously. A constant and controlled production of fresh cheese in this example. <laughs> this is obviously a macroscale analogy. But in chemistry, you typically use these kind of devices for things like nanoparticle nucleation and growth or molecular assembly. So watching particles that will end up at nanometer size literally grow out of nowhere from scratch or watch particles that are disc-shaped assemble themselves into micron-sized nanofibrils. At least that's what got me into microfluidics. You can then use advanced analysis techniques like laser microscopy or X-ray scattering and scan along that reaction channel and look at the time points of your reaction as often and as long as you need to. You basically made yourself a magnifying glass into your reaction. That's pretty cool. But wait, there is more. <laughs> Instead of performing chemical reactions in them, we can also recreate human blood vessels and even organs. Our blood vessels are basically micron-sized channels with liquid pumped through them. The only difference is that their walls are covered in cells. And we can do the same in microfluidic devices. We can make them round and we can grow human endothelial cells on them, so the cells that line your blood vessels. We can take blood and pump it through at about the frequency of one hertz, so 60 beats per minute, and ta-da, we recreated a human blood vessel on a chip. These can be used for drug development and testing, minimizing the jump from the lab bench straight into animal models. And we can go really advanced and fancy with this. With the rapid progress of technology for fabrication and analysis, it is now possible to mimic full organ functionality in microfluidics. We, can, we call them organs on a chip. Like a beating heart or a breathing lung, where some of the cells are open to an air interface and experience a breathing motion. Just this week, I found a paper about a human brain organoid. The possibilities are literally endless. So what is it like to make this happen? Are people like me slaving away countless hours in the lab <laughs> producing these devices? Actually, it's pretty straightforward. It is a multi-step process, but all of it can be done in a day or two, mostly depending on how fast your cells grow, actually. 
If you can't find your desired design in an off-the-shelf device, you can make them yourself out of silicon. Depending on the channel dimension, the de final device is often about the size of a camera SD card and doesn't cost you much more than a dollar or two to fabricate. As the channels are typically micrometer size, which is the width of a human hair, we get to play with some really state-of-the-art technology like confocal laser microscopes to image them in 3D. But why is this useful? Why should we even develop this? Coming back to my initial statement, these devices can minimize the need for animal studies and function as a crucial step in drug trials. Mimicking human organ functionality like this is key for efficient drug development and trial. 95% of new drugs that were shown to be efficient and safe and effective in animal trials fail in humans. Well, animals are just not humans. <laughs> Instead of them being a proxy for us, we can use harvested human cells from consented donors and grow eventually fully functional organoids on microscopy slide scale that could be, in the end, physiologically closer to the functions of a human body and minimize the use of animals, at least for a good part of these studies. We might never fully avoid animal studies, but wouldn't it be nice to think that we are getting closer and closer to minimizing them in the development for new medications? If we look at Europe, for example, there is an ongoing push and petitions to ban in vivo testing, so animal studies, completely not just for cosmetics, but also for medication. Although this is very likely or unlikely <laughs> to happen, it should give us food for thought how we can find ways to at least minimize the use for animals to make a solid point for ethical approval. Organoids and organs on a chip could be a very important step towards that. I believe, personally, microfluidics is the future. Just don't ever ask a researcher in microfluidics about air bubbles. They're evil, and they destroy your work in a matter of a blink of an eye, and we hate them. But maybe that's a story for another day. And with that, I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for inviting me to speak, and stay sciencey. That was Susie Seibt, a research scientist in the vascular biophysics team at CSL. She's also a science communicator with a YouTube channel called Shelium. She was speaking there at our Occam's Razor live event at the Royal Society of Victoria on Wurundjeri land in July. I'm Tegan Taylor, your Occam's Razor host, and we'll have another episode flowing your way next week. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.